headed to kids' worship. Uh, Pastor CJ is teaching that, so y'all have a lot of fun this morning back there, guys. So we're thankful for y'all leading us in song and in praise before the Lord in this Christmas season. Well, friends, as we continue to think about Christmas and think about Advent, which literally means coming, the coming of Christ. We've seen over the last two weeks how Christ's coming gives us hope, how Christ's coming gives us peace. Just as Jeremy was praying earlier, it's a peace, it's a hope that's not based on our circumstances. It's not something that requires the world to be perfect for us to have, but it's something in the midst of the brokenness of the world we can still have hope and peace because of what Christ has done. And it's so amazing. It brings God great glory because it's so different than anything the world has. Now, friends, this morning we come to the theme of joy in the Advent season, this third week of Advent, how Christ's coming brings us joy. Well, that raises the question, what is joy? Now, it's different than happiness. Happiness is so circumstantial, depending on if my day is going well or not going well. What is joy? We start looking up dictionary definitions of joy, and dictionaries have a hard time capturing joy. If you try to, so if you try to describe to a friend what joy is, it's hard to do. Different people attempt to describe joy in things like this. It is great delight. It is keen pleasure. It is elation. It is glad feeling. It's valuing something really greatly. There's so many different ways to describe it. Here's how I understand joy. I believe joy is the experience deep within us of great delight. It's an experience that's deep within us of great delight. It's not based on what's happening around us. It's something that we have inside of us that gives us great delight, glad feelings. And friends, as a follower of Christ, it's the overflow of our relationship with him. It's the overflow of believing in Him. It's part of what we saw back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies that is, belongs to us now. Joy is part of that, every spiritual blessings. It's part of what Galatians 5 describes for us as the fruit of the Spirit, the result of having the Holy Spirit in our lives. It produces in our lives things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's part of the fruit of that. So friends, realize this morning at the outset, and everything we're going to talk about with joy, joy is a grace gift of God to us. It's something that God gives to us. It's his kindness to us and providing it for us. And so as you think about joy this morning, I want you to be encouraged in how Christ's coming enables us to have a real deep joy in our heart, no matter what trials or sufferings or difficulties we are walking through. But I also want us to be stretched this morning, because the reality, friends, is that we will not find this type of joy unless we really know Christ. We're not going to find this type of joy unless we really are following him. And that means we have to be willing to sacrifice whatever stands in the way of us knowing Christ deeply. That means, friends, the joy that we long for in our heart and soul has a cost to it. And there's some in the world who see the cost to having this joy, the cost of believing in Christ, and they gladly embrace the cost. They're willing to sacrifice whatever stands in the way, and they find great joy as a result. But there's many in the world who look at the cost of following Christ and say, it's not worth it to me, and they miss out on this joy that is his grace gift to us. So as you find Matthew's gospel this morning, Matthew chapter 13, maybe thinking, well, wait, 13 is not part of the Christmas story, is it? No, it's not, but it has everything to do with the Christmas story this morning. I want to start in Matthew chapter 13. I want to start with a parable that Jesus told. A parable is a story that Jesus told to teach a point. And then from the truth we get out of that, I then want to go back to Matthew chapter 2 to see how that connects in with what we traditionally think of as the Christmas story. So we're going to compare a parable with the account of the Christmas story this morning. We're going to start in Matthew 13. And I want you to see this morning first from God's Word, before we even get into the text, this idea, sacrificing all to follow Christ gives great joy. Sacrificing all to follow Christ gives great joy. Friends, the amazing experience you and I can have of not just happiness, but deep-seated joy in our heart. And not just temporary joy, but ongoing joy 
every day, regardless of what's happening in our lives or the world around us, is a joy that God gives us as his followers. Yet to experience that, it requires something of us. It requires us to give up anything that stands in the way of following him. So, for instance, Christmas season, when we see our nativity sets, it's not just some little nice set to give us warm feelings. We're talking about something that reminds us of a historical account that actually happened in world history and that forces a decision upon us. Will I follow Christ regardless of the cost, giving up whatever stands in my way to follow him? And will I find true joy as I do that? Or will I continue to live for myself in the world, avoiding sacrificing things to follow him and miss out on God's best for us? From sacrificing all to follow Christ gives great joy. So I want us to start this morning in Matthew chapter 13. We're starting in verse 44, and there's two short parables back to back on this. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and the words will be up on the screen. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse number 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now continue to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Would you go back to Matthew chapter 2 now? Because I want you to see this lived out in Matthew 2. Because here in Matthew 2, there's going to be a contrast of some who were willing to give up everything to follow Christ and others who would not. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought us hope, you have brought us peace, and you have brought us joy. God, I pray this morning in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters that you would free us from the distractions of the season, free us from whatever things are worrying us or concerning us, and help us focus in on your character and who you are and what you've offered to us. God, I pray we come away this morning better understanding joy, but also what you're calling us to sacrifice to find the joy in you. And would you transform us as we study your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Again, I want you to see this morning, sacrificing all to follow Christ brings great joy. We'll start with Jesus' teaching. So go back now to Matthew chapter 13. We'll come back to Matthew 2 in a minute. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 13. And we're seeing two parables. Now, let me just remind you something we talked back on a Wednesday night about a year and a half ago of what is a parable. 
a parable is not something that historically happened. It's a story that Jesus tells to teach a point. And when you study a parable, what's important is you don't get hung up on all the little details of it. It's a story to get you to, to learn one truth. It's ability to get you to learn one main idea. And so we don't allegorize it. We're not trying to find symbols in it. We're not trying to, t- to take it apart. We're trying to find what is the truth that Jesus is trying to help us understand here. And both of the parables this morning, starting in verse 44 and verse 45, begin with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. These parables have everything to do with the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes in your, in your study of scripture, you'll come across it called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same thing. This refers to the rule and the reign of Christ over all things. His sovereign reign over the whole cosmos of everything that happens. But it's not just some impersonal reign of God over all things. We see the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It gets very personal and very close to us. Because it has to do with us and our experience of his reign in our lives. In Matthew 19, you probably remember Jesus saying, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. So there's the idea here of a person entering in to God's kingdom, a person coming under the rule and reign of Christ as he becomes not just their savior, but their Lord, their boss, their master. You know the command of Matthew 6.33 probably pretty well. Seek first God's kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're commanded to seek after his kingdom. So we think of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven here. Yes, it's his reign, his sovereign reign over every atom of the whole cosmos. But it's also very personal of the experience of his reign, his lordship over our lives. And that's very much what these parables are about here. Let's look at the first one here, back in verse number 44. Look back at verse Matthew 13, 44 with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, when a man found, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now here in this parable, the story is a man is not even looking for a treasure. He's literally wandering through a field, and he stumbles across something, and he realizes it has value, it has worth, it is amazing. Now what does the man do when he realizes in this field he doesn't own, there's something amazing there? Does he go, well, that's really interesting, that looks kind of valuable, but you know, I want to go see my friend right now. That'd be a lot of work to go purchase the property and go to the bank and have to come back and get a shovel and dig it out. And then we get all this money, my friend start asking me for help. He doesn't come up with an excuse for this. He realizes how valuable and worth this thing is. And so he goes to buy the field so it'll be rightfully his. He sells what he has. And notice back in verse 44, then in his joy he goes and sells how much of what he has? He sells all that he has. Now, again, this is a story that Jesus is telling to teach a point. But think about what all would include. I think that what Jesus is trying to drive home here. A man who's stumbling across a treasure to sell all he can to buy it, he's going to sell his house, the clothes apart from what's on his back, his pots and pans. He's probably going to sell his donkey and his goats and whatever animals he has. And he's going to take time to do so. That whatever he's found is so valuable to him is worth his time It's worth his possessions being given up. There's nothing that he's going to cling to because he wants this treasure so bad. And notice in verse 44, his attitude towards this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his, what? What's the next word? In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In the experience deep within his heart of great delight... He goes and gets rid of every material possession he owns. He sacrifices his time because he wants that treasure so bad. Like literally inside, he's like dancing and jumping up and out at the thought of getting rid of everything he has because he wants what he has just stumbled across that he wasn't even looking for. And Jesus says that image for us is what our experience should be when we discover the kingdom of God. 
We discover God ruling in our lives. We should have that joy and being willing to lay aside anything else because we want to find Christ. Because we want to experience Him, not just a distant God looking on at us, but a God who's willing to abide with us, who is willing to send His Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to be our Lord and our boss over us, that we should have that experience. Because sacrificing everything to follow Christ will give great joy, like we see this man in this parable. There's a second parable here for us as well. Similar in his teaching, but Jesus has a different audience in view. Because whereas the first parable, the man wasn't even looking for treasure, and God in his kindness lets him find it. In the second parable here, the, guy's, the, the person is looking for treasure, but hasn't found the best treasure, and now he finds something even better. So look at verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and bought it. So now here you have a merchant, a businessman, looking for things of value. And this is a man who's seen things of value over the years. He's seen pearl after pearl after pearl, and he's come across now one that's far shinier than he's ever seen, far more beautiful than he's ever seen, far more expensive than he's ever seen. It's the most valuable pearl he has ever seen. And when he recognizes the worth of this thing that he's never seen before, how much does he sell? Oh, he sells everything he has. Now he's a merchant. What would that mean? He would sell his inventory. He would sell his store. He would sell his house. He would sell his travel goods as he goes from village to village. So he's willing to get rid of all that because none of that means anything to him because he's found something so much more worthy, so much more valuable, and he wants it. Jesus says that's to be our attitude towards the kingdom of heaven, again, to God's reign over our lives, to his love in our hearts. He's showing us through these two parables a a picture of what it means to pursue Christ. Now, I want you to notice something in this. Following Christ in his teaching here requires two things. It's not what our culture normally holds up. Our culture normally holds up. Following Christ means you pray a prayer, get baptized, and join a church and serve on a serving team somewhere, and you're okay. That's not what he's holding up here is what it means to follow Christ. If we're going to follow Christ, there's two things he holds up as requiring us right here. First, if we're really going to follow Christ, we have to treasure him above all else. And I think our culture misses this so much. The following Christ is not a prayer I pray so I don't go to hell. If I really believe in Christ, it means I treasure him above all things else. We don't follow Christ begrudgingly. We don't do so because we just don't want to go to hell. If we are truly a follower, we love him. We treasure him. We see him to be the thing of greatest value in the whole world. So if we follow Christ, we have to treasure him. But second of all, we have to give up whatever stands in our way of following him. We have to treasure him, but we also have to stand in, we have to be willing to give up whatever stands in the way of following him. The whole thing here where he tells us that each one of these guys, the guy walking through the field sells all that he has, and the merchant sells all that he has, he's not trying to get us to nitpick whether or not he sold his house or his donkey or his goats. The point is, his heart had fallen so in love with this thing of great value, it didn't even seem like a sacrifice to him to part with. He was willing to get rid of whatever stood in the way. He wanted this treasure, and he knew what it would take to get it, so he was willing to sell everything else to get what he needed to get the treasure. And he's saying, this is what it's like for you. If you want to follow me, you need to be willing to sacrifice anything else that's going to stand in the way of you following after me. And so, friends, we need to ask ourselves a hard question at Christmas and all the time. Is there anything that I treasure more than Christ? Is there anything I love more than Christ? Is there anything that I'm not willing to give up to follow Christ? Because there's a lot of people who say, yeah, I want to follow Christ, but no, I really don't want to give up that sin habit. Or no, I really don't want him to call me to obey him and reconcile that relationship. And go on and on. You can fill in the blanks, and I'll trust the Holy Spirit to show you what are the things in our hearts that we have trouble letting go of to follow Christ. 
But friends, if we find our delight in something apart from Christ, if we find our treasure in something apart from Christ, two things happen. One, we deprive God of the glory that's due to Him. Because he, when we love something more than Him, we're not treasuring Him. We're not saying, God, you're the supreme worthy one. You're the one who can satisfy my soul. We're trying to find our delight in something less than has been created. And it deprives Him of the glory that He is due. But friends, if we also try to find treasure in things besides Christ, we shortchange ourselves. We miss out on the joy that He wants us to have. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of kids' books called The Chronicles of Narnia. I love reading those to my boys, and I love just reading them myself. I mean, they're, they're fascinating stories. But C.S. Lewis was also a very gifted theologian in addition to an author. He had a really famous sermon once, which was called The Weight of Glory. I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis said in this. As he's thinking about what do we treasure and how so often we fall short of treasuring what we really should treasure. He said this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward... And the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, Christ offers us joy. Pure joy, true joy, that's not based on our circumstances. But he says, to find this, you have to follow me, because joy comes from knowing him, from abiding in him, having the Holy Spirit within us, experiencing every spiritual blessings. He says, you have to follow me to find this joy. And we kind of, in so many of our culture, and so often in our own lives, we kind of go, mm, too much trouble, not worth it. And we're like the person here. It's not that our desires are too strong for other things. Our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when he's offered us infinite joy. And I love C.S. Lewis's image here for us of someone who goes to a child in a slum who's playing in mud and says, hey, I'll take you to the beach. And he goes, no, I like my mud. But he doesn't understand what he's missing. So often our hearts, friends, God is offering us infinite joy from knowing him, from abiding in him. And we go, mm. No, I'm kind of content playing in the mud, Lord. Friends, sacrificing all to follow Christ gives us great joy. The question is, are we willing to do that? That's what brings us back to the Christmas story. So go back to Matthew chapter 2, the account of the wise men. We're in Matthew's gospel. Like I mentioned last week, there's four gospels. Gospel means good news. Four accounts here of the life of Christ. They all tell one story. They don't contradict each other, but it's four different people who've written for us about the life of Christ. And each one has a different audience and view. And they record for us different details. And when we put them together, we have a much more holistic account of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we come to Matthew chapter 2. That You'll see in this text some people who were willing to sacrifice all to follow Christ. And they found great joy. And you see some people who refused to sacrifice because they didn't want to give up their power, their prestige, their fame, their control. And they missed out on the joy that Christ offered. So let's go back just to the first two verses for context. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, these wise men, sometimes you hear them, and sometimes they're called magi. That comes from the Greek word that describes them, magoi, which describes them as men of wisdom. Who are these wise men? Well, the scholars who study this say that these were probably Scott were probably priests in Persia and Babylon. 
So think of the Babylonian Empire. These were priests in there. And these priests served the king. They served the, the leaders by doing two things. They would combine astronomy, looking at the stars, with astrology, trying to tell the future by looking at the stars. They were men of influence. They were kind of political and religious leaders at the same time. And they had been around a while. In fact, if you go back to Daniel chapters 1 and 2, these are the people that the king calls to try to interpret his dreams who fall short in interpreting dreams. And that's when they called Daniel in because these wise men, these magi, were unable to do that. So realize when we hear wise men, we think of these really smart scholars who found Christ. Friends, these are pagan priests. Okay, make sure when you see the nice, pretty nativity set, you realize that these are, these are pagan priests who are serving false gods, trying to use astrology to control the or to, to determine the future. That's who we're talking about when we say wise men. But notice the question of these pagan priests in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. In the Greek text here, there's one word that's emphasized, and that word that's emphasized is born. We kind of read over that. But where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These magi knew that there was a rightful king for the Jewish people who would come through the Jewish lineage. And they're asking, where is the one who's been born? Herod wasn't the rightful king, but they knew that a rightful king was coming. And they were looking for who out of the family line of the Israelites would be the king. Has he ever paused to wonder how them seeing a star or supernatural light in the, in the sky made them equate that with the king of the Jews coming out of a particular lineage? How in the world did these pagan priests come to make that connection? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24 that a star would come out of Jacob. And the Jews throughout the years had interpreted that prophecy to mean that out of the line of Jacob, out of the lineage that would come of the Jewish people, that the Messiah would come. So the star coming out of Jacob was understood to be a messianic prophecy. So perhaps these pagan priests... And Babylon knew Numbers 24, 17 and knew that that was the case. But why then did it compel them so much to come? Well, let me remind you, friends, that for 70 years, the Jewish people had been exiled and were captives in Babylon. And you look at people like Daniel who were faithful to study the Word of God and faithful to live out their faith even while they were exiles in captivity. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. Some of these pagan priests like these magi got exposed to the Old Testament teachings. Got exposed to the prophecies that the Messiah was coming and began to even have within their own heart hope that the Messiah would come. So, friends, as a side note, I think we still have to underestimate what God wants to do in our trials. Years of Babylonian captivity is not what any of God's people wanted. But yet, in the midst of that, the good news that the Messiah is coming goes to pagan priests. And look at what happens. These pagan priests who have heard, who've seen, faith in God lived out by the Jewish people in exile. They've been exposed to the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would come, be, the sign would be the star. And look at what happens. Go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. They come, pagan priests, not in a place where the Jewish faith had been established, and they ask this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And that's what happens in verse 11. Look at, look at this. This is stunning. And going into the house, they, this is these pagan priests, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. God took his message going through his people in exile to bring the prophecies to these magi, to these priests at the time in Babylon, to then bring them to a place where they were hoping for the Messiah, to where they themselves would become worshippers, friends. Stunning to see the sovereign hand of God at working to bring even Gentile worshippers early on in Christ's earthly journey here. 
But friends, to realize this, for them to come find Christ was costly for them. And we don't know all the details, but we do know if they came from Babylon, where we think they came from, it was a 40-day journey to Jerusalem. That means round trip, these pagan priests who serve the king have left their king's service for at least 80 days, not counting time in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. That is a lot of time they've given up from their duties. It took money, not only to travel, but they brought costly gifts. All their gifts are associated with royalty. Friends, they didn't stop at the dollar store on the way to Jerusalem to pick up a last-minute gift to take to, to Jesus and to Mary and to Joseph. They brought the most treasured things of royalty they could find, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And friends, I try to do much speculation, but I can't help but speculate here. This could potentially have cost them their jobs. And we don't know that for sure. But remember, these are priests of a false religion who have now left that to come to worship the Jewish king, the true king. And we don't know what happened when they returned home. The Lord knows, and maybe one day we'll find out when we get to heaven on that. But I believe it could have been costly for them. They've left the service of their king to go find the Jewish Messiah, taking time and money. And God draws them. God brings them to where they are. They become worshipers. Friends, was it worth it to them? Was the time, was the cost, was their reputation, whatever else could have been that they were willing to sacrifice, was it worth it to them? Go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. I love this verse. When they saw the star, let me just pause. Why are they so excited? Because the star was leading them. If you go back up to verse 9 here, behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them. Like the star moved, friends. It wasn't like they saw like a like a planet in the, in the sky. Like literally, they're in Jerusalem and they're trying to find where he is and the star is like moving, guiding them. God is drawing them. God is leading them in a supernatural way. And when they realize what they're finding, look at verse 10 again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced, period. Now they rejoiced exceedingly. But that doesn't even capture what they were feeling in their hearts. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like how many times do we have to say the word rejoice or exceedingly or great joy to capture what's happening in the hearts of these guys who are pagan priests back in Babylon who now have seen God draw them, who they've seen the prophecies coming true. And when they realize that God is drawing them, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They have an experience deep within them of great delight. A delight that probably surpassed anything they ever had found in the courts of their king and interpreting any dreams or any prestige they had as political or figures in their place. They found an experience of deep, deep joy as they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They sacrificed all to follow Christ. And friends, they found great joy. But in this account, that's who we typically focus on. But there's others in this account who are not willing to sacrifice to find Christ. And that's Herod and the religious leaders. Look back at verse 3 of Matthew 2 here. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled... And all Jerusalem with him. Now, all Jerusalem, we believe, means the, like the religious leaders and the, the, who are kind of the religious establishment, if you will, of Jerusalem. He was troubled. Now, the word trouble doesn't capture the Greek word here. The Greek word that we translate trouble literally means terrified or in turmoil. This wasn't like, oh, man, there's some new baby who may one day be king. Like, it literally means that, that Herod and the religious leaders were in turmoil. They were terrified in their hearts. They don't want to lose their position of power. They don't want to lose their prestige. They are unwilling to sacrifice. And so here and the religious leaders are unwilling to follow Christ. Have you noticed in this account before, friends, that these are the religious leaders? They knew the Old Testament prophecies. Herod doesn't understand what's going on, so he calls the religious leader and says, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And these religious leaders understand the prophecy. We're not going to reread it, but verse 6, they're quoting Old Testament prophecy to tell them that, well, Bethlehem is where this is going to happen. This is what we've known and been longing for. This is certainly going to happen. But do any of the religious leaders even take the time to go to Bethlehem to discover for themselves what's happening? No. Bethlehem is six miles away. 
where they are. We're not talking about like a long journey, like the, the 80 days or so round trip that the wise men would have come on. This is a six-mile journey. All the prophecies they've been watching for their whole life and have been taught is literally coming true before their eyes. They know it's supposed to happen six miles away. And now you have these wise men from the east who've shown up and said, hey, there's literally like a light in the sky and it's, and it's moving and we're following it and it's brought us to this point. They've seen supernatural signs. They're hearing of this. They see this is where the prophecy is supposed to happen and they shrug their shoulders and they won't even travel those six miles to see if these prophecies have, in fact, come true. Rather, they stay in Jerusalem in turmoil, distressed, troubled, unwilling to sacrifice anything to follow Christ. And friends, in the end, what's so sad and heartbreaking this account, these ones, these religious leaders who have been trusted with the scriptures, who spent all their days studying the scriptures, longing for the Messiah, have the Messiah six miles away, have right before their eyes people who've had a, a drawing from God to go find him, and they're willing to uneven travel that six miles to even sacrifice a day to go see if this is in fact the Messiah. And they miss out on the joy, not just miss out on the joy, they, they're going to experience or have experienced the, the terrifying wrath of God. But contrast that with these wise men, these pagan priests, who had heard from the Jews about the Messiah, who believed the prophecy that, ironically, the Jewish people were rejecting here. They followed God drawing them. They sacrificed all. They became worshipers. And go back to verse 10 again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Just like the man in the parables that we saw, they found a treasure and they sold all to find it. They found the pearl of great price and they sold it to follow. Friends, sacrificing all to follow Christ gives great joy. So with that in view, friends, I want to ask you this morning, what about you? Again, when you see the wise men in the nativity, don't just pass over that as, oh, that's nice. These were early Gentile worshipers that came because God was drawing them because some of God's people had been faithful to share the scriptures with them so they even knew what they were looking for. Friends, this is not just a nice story. This is a story that calls us to points of decision. And for us, it calls us to ask two things. First of all, have we found Christ to be our treasure? Because, friends, if we don't treasure Christ, we're not followers of Christ, no matter how many nice things we do in the church or the community. Have we found Christ to be our treasure? Have we found Christ to be the one that we love the most and who brings us the greatest joy? I pray, friends, for my heart and your heart this Christmas season, when we sing the nativities and we hear the Christmas songs, that it will drive us not just to be like, oh, that's nice, I get warm feelings at Christmas, but drive us to a place of going, am I treasuring Christ? And if we find that there's things standing in our way, to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, give me grace to treasure you above all else. Friends, also I believe it forces us to a second question, are there things that I'm clinging to that keep me from following him? I don't know what it might be in your life, but in all of us are things that become roadblocks that we do not want to sacrifice, sin patterns we don't want to give up, broken relationships we don't want to mend and humble ourselves on. Whatever it may be, Lord, in your life, I don't know, but the Lord does. Are there things in our life that we're clinging to that keep us from following him? And I pray this Christmas, friends, that we would think about all these wonders of Christmas, that we would find joy, but we'd realize that sacrificing all to follow him will give us great joy. But with that as well, friends, I pray that perhaps like Daniel when he was in captivity in Babylon and was faithful to point even the wise men there to who God is, I pray even this Christmas season for you and I that as we spend time with neighbors and family and friends that perhaps God will give us opportunities that we may not see it this side of heaven to live out our faith, to live out the gospel and be so transformed people that we get a chance to point people as well to the hope of God and the joy they can find as well. Would you pray with me? Father God, I do thank you that you offer us peace and hope and joy. And Lord, we know those don't come from anything we can manufacture, but we only experience that as we abide with you. Lord, I know this Christmas season is busy for me and for these precious brothers and sisters also. 
Lord, I pray for much grace in each of our hearts, Lord, over these next few weeks, Lord, that, Lord, that we would treasure you above all else, God, that we want to sit in your presence, that we want to spend time with you, that we would want to meditate on your word and pray, Lord, that we want to just be with you. God, I pray as we do that, that you would meet with us. And God, I pray that you would help us treasure you more. Lord, I don't know any of us who would say that we treasure you like we should. Lord, we are so short-sighted, like C.S. Lewis said in that quote. Lord, we so easily get distracted with the things of this world. And Lord, I just pray for my heart and these brothers and sisters. God, that you would help us treasure you more. God, we cannot manufacture those desires. But God, you can. So would you breathe upon us? Would you send your Holy Spirit to fill us? And God, would you give us eyes to see, even this Christmas season, your glory, your majesty, the wonders of who you are in ways we never have any Christmas before. And God, that we would find you to be that pearl of great price. We find you to be that treasure hidden in the field. And we, like the wise men, as we encounter you in your word and in prayer, we, like the wise men, would experience this experience that words fall short describe, that we would rejoice exceedingly with great joy as we worship you. Oh God, give us grace not to miss that and all the hustle and bustle of the season. Lord, I pray it wouldn't be limited to Christmas. That God, every day that you would give us grace to long for you, to long to sit at your feet, to long to treasure you above all else. Lord, keep growing us in that to make us the people you want us to be. Lord, even as we think about how the good news got to these wise men to where they'd even be looking for the star and then willing to follow a long distance, God, I pray that you would help us, whatever situation we're in, to be faithful to let the love of Christ shine through us. God, that we would have peace and hope and joy and love in our lives. Not that we manufacture, but God, that comes from you. And God, through that, you give us opportunities to open our mouth as your ambassadors, your ministers of reconciliation. As with a stranger in the store or someone we see, or a family member or at a family or work gathering, God, that we would make you known and point others to you, to where others will become worshipers and find the joy that we have in treasuring you. And we'll give you the praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?